Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. That is a beautiful song. I think we need to incorporate that because it really tells, a, tells us all about our Lord and our Savior and all that he's done. And it's him who we're here to honor today, Jesus. It's all about him. And we're going to do that as we get into the word of God this morning. Before that, though, I just want to say thank you to every one of you who were out here yesterday. It was a great turnout to those who came out here to help and lend hand on our grounds to help spruce them up for spring. And it was on the calendar for quite a while, a spring cleanup. And we weren't sure whether it was going to be 30 degrees or not, but it turned out to be a beautiful day to help take care of uh, God's uh, provision here in all the land. So thank you. Thank you to every single one of you that were here. God bless you. You're, uh, you're, you're absolutely wonderful servants. We've been uh, beginning each week talking a little bit about speaking to others and being bold. It's been a prayer since early in the beginning of the year. I want to keep it alive. I want to keep it in front of us. And I continue to pray all of us would be bold for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's keep the prayer alive. Just pray with me from Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Amen. Amen. Let's do that wherever we are. And if you'd like helpful reminders, we have some invitation cards out in our foyer. You can pick them up. They're just little business card size to invite people. If you get talking to someone about the Lord and say, hey, what do you need to do? Or where could I meet you again? Say here, right here. Come on, I'll see you at church. Uh, So pick some of those up. That would be wonderful. And it's a great little reminder too. Today we're going to continue talking about Jesus and the way of the cross all that Jesus has done for us, all that he went through, all that he accomplished. But if you've been here uh, for the past few weeks, you know we've been looking at the way of the cross, what Jesus accomplished for us from the context of the Old Testament, the forward look to Jesus, all that was written about him in the Old Testament pointing to what he was going to do for us. And this morning, we're going to continue with that. And I want to begin with a little illustration. I I, uh, was thinking about baseball last week, right? Because we had opening day Monday, right? And hey, the Tigers are doing all right, aren't they? They won yesterday. They're, um, okay, let's keep our hopes there, right? Uh, I don't know, they say that the pitching's great, the hitting's not that great. Uh, But I read an article about a guy in Baltimore. His name is Chris Davis. And if you want to talk about bad hitting, he's supposed to be their great slugger. $161 million contract. And this poor guy is on the very edge of setting the record for baseball's worst hitting slump ever. And the fans in Baltimore are not happy about it. You know it's really disappointing when someone you're counting on lets you down. 
when the champ, the slugger, is supposed to be out there blasting him out of the park and nothing happens. It's a big, big disappointment. It reminds me of that old poem, Casey at the Bat. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning left to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. Now, if you remember the story of KC, here it is. It's the ninth inning. The score's four to two. And there's two outs. But there's two guys that stand in the way of the champ, the slugger. And what's going to happen? Well, if you know the poem, two guys get on base. No, the first guy hits a single, the second a double. So now there's two men on. There's two outs. And Casey comes to the bat, the mighty Casey, the slugger. Now what occurs? Pitch number one. Casey stands there. Not my style. Not my style. Pitch number two. Casey yawns. Now that's the second called strike. The first one was called a strike. The second one was called a strike. Now, the count's 2-0. There's two men on. There's two out. It's the last thing. This is the last hope. So this is how the poem closes. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounced with cruel violence. His bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball. And now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. That's the famous poem of the famous champ, the slugger, the one who was going to win the game. But the prideful champion, he whiffed. He whiffed. Now that reminds me. That reminds me of another champion. Another champion for the nation of Judah. Now they had many, but one that came to mind, his name was King Josiah. I'm going to tell you a little about this champion of, of Judah. Now King Josiah... He followed two terrible kings. He was, for most uh, accounts, a good king. But he had two terrible predecessors. His grandfather, Manasseh, was a terrible, awful, vile, wicked king. He set up all kinds of altars all, all over Judah, worshipped these false gods, led the people in idolatry, and he was just evil. And what happened to this man? I want to give you a little bit of his story. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, uh, verses 12 to 13. This is the story of Manasseh. Now, he was vile and evil, but he'd been captured by the enemy. And this is what happened. Verse 12. In his distress, Manasseh sought 
the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now, this king was evil and wicked and rejected God for years. He reigned 55 years, and for decades, he rejected God, refused God, didn't want to have anything to do with him, set up all these false idols. And here now, near the end of his life, the king humbled himself. He received the spirit of supplication. He called on God, and he was heard, and God showed him grace. And when he died, he died having humbled himself and received the grace of God. Now keep that in mind. Keep that in mind about Manasseh who lived this long and evil life and he humbled himself and was received by God humble when he died. Now when he died, his son, Ammon, who was Josiah's dad, Ammon came and took the throne. Now, he was worse than Manasseh. He just was evil, with abandoned. He worshiped all kinds of things, led the people in idolatry. And what happened to Ammon? He only lasted two years. This is how bad this guy was. His own cabinet, his own officials assassinated him. So he was done. He didn't even take time to humble himself before God. He was killed by his own people. And then Josiah, Ammon's son, took the throne. Actually, he was put on the throne. He was only a boy. And I want to give you some of the account of Josiah, who is this champion of Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 and 3, or 1 to 3. Josiah was 8, just a boy. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the way of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. So Josiah did well. Now this this uh, reference to his father, David, is really one of his great-grandfathers, David, who was the, the first real good king of uh, Israel and really set the stage. And, of course, the line of Jesus was prophesied through King David. So that reference to David, his father, is not Ammon, who was his biological father. And it's a reference to what Josiah wanted to accomplish. Be a man after God's own heart like King David. He did well from eight years old. By the time he was 16, he was seeking God. Think about that. He's still young. He's, he's an, just a, uh, an adolescent, really. And he is seeking God. By the time he's 20, he's already a spiritual leader. He's taken down all these things about idolatry and he's reestablishing the way of God. 31 years he reigned. Now, let's fast forward to the end of his reign. 31 years into this man's reign, the, the champion of Judah, Pharaoh Necho from Egypt comes with his army. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with Judah. 
he wants to meet the Assyrians kind of halfway up in the northern part of uh, Israel to do battle. So Josiah goes out and he confronts this Pharaoh Necho and he says, really, you shouldn't be here and I'm going to take you on. And the Pharaoh said, no, King Josiah, listen, I heard from God. I have heard from God. I got no business with you. I got no beef with you. Just leave me alone. I'm coming to take out the Assyrians. Well, King Josiah did not listen. And it did not go well. Let's read about this in 2 Chronicles 35. This is the end of the chapter, verses 22 to 25, or near the end. After Necho told him, just... I I got nothing to do with you. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but he disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Necho had said at God's command, but he went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. Archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, take me away, I am badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in his other chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. 31 years. Josiah was rock solid. 31 years he followed God. 31 years he listened to the Lord and he was serving the Lord. And then what happened? He didn't listen. He turned away. He turned from the word of God. And this is the exact opposite of his evil grandfather Manasseh. Manasseh who had turned to God. Manasseh who had humbled himself. But his grandson Josiah, after a lifetime of serving God, turned away from God. What a difference. Evil Manasseh, who had humbled himself, received back his throne, and he received his kingdom. What happened to Josiah? He was pierced through by the arrow of the enemy. Now do you think you've arrived at a place where you can't fall to temptation Do you believe that because you've served the Lord for a year or five years or 10 years or 31 years that you can't turn away? That you're gonna stay strong? Don't think it. Don't entertain the thought. Can you be tempted? Yes, you can be tempted. Can you fall? If we become prideful, if we become full of arrogance and hubris and and build ourselves up, What can happen? That'll take over all of pride and our shields against the enemy will drop and the arrows of the enemy can hit us. Yes, we can fall and we can fall hard if we turn from the word of God, if we turn like Josiah did. 31 years he served the Lord and then he allowed his heart to turn away. He turned his attention from the Lord to himself. He even tried to hide. He put on a disguise. But the arrows of the enemy found him and pierced him. And he died out in the plain of Megiddo. And what is this place? What is this place called Megiddo? 
It's in the north of Israel. It's also known as the Valley of Jezreel, where many battles had been fought from Joshua way back, one of the patriarchs, to King Saul, King David, and others. There were many battles in this valley. And in the battle with Necho from Egypt, the nation lost their king. They lost their prideful king. He was, he was struck down. He struck out. And the people were broken. They were lost. They mourned their fallen champion. They composed songs of mourning. And they composed songs of lament for their king. Dirges, laments. They were sung and they had to be sung. They had to be remembered. This became a tradition to sing with regularity. The fall of Josiah. All of this for Josiah. And he was dead. Their last real hope for survival as a nation. The Egyptian Pharaoh humiliated Judah. And you can read more if you just finish the chapter and move into the next one. And then along comes Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. He lays siege to Jerusalem. Ultimately, the city's destroyed. The nation falls. The temple's destroyed. And all this occurs within about 30 years from the time that Josiah died. Not too long after. Their hope, their champion had died. And the nation fell. Now, what does this have to do with the cross? And you might all be scratching your head. I haven't heard anything about the way of the cross. Great question. I'm getting there. Let's fast forward about 100 years after the death of King Josiah. Judah's been destroyed. Jerusalem's uh, been destroyed. The walls are broken down. The temple's been uh, destroyed. The people have been captive in Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years, they've made their way back to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the walls. And a prophet named Zechariah appears on the scene. He was like a second Isaiah, given to visions, great prophet. In Zechariah chapter 12, the prophet speaks of protection, salvation for Judah and Jerusalem. And he kind of points back to Josiah. He speaks of a future day. And while he speaks of that future day, he also points back. He says, on that day, and he repeats it over and over again. On that day, on that day, Jerusalem's going to be strong. On that day, the inhabitants of Judah will be powerful. This future day is about something, and it's all about Jesus. And it's all about the cross. Zechariah compared the future, and he compared it with the past, the day that the king lost his life. Now let's consider this. This is Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 to 14. Zechariah wrote this about that day. On that day I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives. The clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. The clan of the house of Levi and their wives. The clan 
of Shemai and their wives and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Now, here in this short passage from the prophet Zechariah, there's parallels to this champion of Judah, Josiah the imperfect king, who was an empty champion, a fallen champion, one who struck out, and he's compared with Jesus, the perfect champion, the true champion, the one who's going to be victorious forever. Zechariah makes an allusion to the past, to Josiah, the wayward king, the king who had been pierced by the arrows of the enemy and had died. And there was weeping and mourning in Jerusalem. And then Zechariah points to the future, a time of mourning. So there's a connection between the mourning of the past and the mourning in the future. He says, on that day, the future day of mourning, it'll be like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And what is this? Hadad Ramon, it's a place. It's a place there out in this valley, out there in this plain of Megiddo, and it's named after two pagan gods. And this is thought to be the place where Josiah was pierced by the enemy's arrows. And he received his mortal wound. Isn't that an appropriate place for a guy who turned his back on God and said, I'm not going to listen to the word of God. I'm not going to seek him. No more supplication from me. He goes to a place that's named after two pagan gods and the enemy gets him. He turned his back on the living God and he was slain in the plain of Megiddo at this place called Hadad Ramon, the champion of Judah who had all placed their hope in. He was killed. And the nation mourned, mourned so much that Jeremiah wrote laments that became traditions, dirges, songs that had to be sung, sadly. Zechariah had something interesting, though. He had something interesting about the mourning of the future. He said, in essence, it's going to be collective, but it's also going to be individual. He speaks of clans and husbands and wives separated by themselves, he wrote, by themselves, individual and personal, like mourning for a child. Now this is all pointing to the cross. It's all pointing forward. It's all a distinct uh, contrast between the path of the wayward king and the path of the king of kings, the way of the cross. The human king had been lost. He struck out. He was pierced. He was dead. And that king had been mourned. But the passage is not just looking back. It's looking forward. It's not just looking at a mortal king. It's looking forward to the divine king, the divine king Jesus, who offers living hope, and he brings a spirit of grace and supplication. Now, he too is going to die. He too will be pierced, pierced by the executioner's nails, hammered through his hands and hammered through his feet as he's affixed to a cross. The way of the cross is here in this passage from Zechariah. The sufferings of Jesus are pictured and illustrated here. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn. That's a forward look to the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. In the fulfillment of prophecy, it's clear to me in Acts chapter 2, where the apostle Peter stood before thousands of Jews, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he said this, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. When all of Israel, all the house of David, as Zechariah referred to the people, when they heard that, when they heard that they crucified Jesus, when they they crucified the Lord, they had pierced him. They mourned. They were cut to the heart. They had killed their champion. They had killed their own champion. However, this guy, this champion was different. He was different than the king that was slain out on the plain of Megiddo. Peter assured the crowd Jesus was a true champion. Jesus was victorious. He said, God raised this Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him down. Divine power was victorious over mortal power. Divine power was victorious over death. The people who had put their hope in human power, and they had cried out things like, we have no king but Caesar. And they had refused God's own son by killing him, nailing him to a cross. They still had hope. It's amazing. They had hope for grace. Yes, they killed him. And though he was resurrected to life, the violence and the brutality of what they had done, it stunned them. And it began to sink in when they had realized what they had done to their champion nailed the king of glory to a cross. They were cut to the heart. And they mourned collectively. And they cried out to Peter and the others, what do we do? What do we do? Next 2.38 gives the answer. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now, now the collective mourning, now the collective mourning must change. And each each one must mourn individually by themselves and express sorrow for their sins, sorrow for their refusal of God. Like Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. There he was all alone. He was captured by the enemy, and he humbled his heart. He, this evil one humbled his heart before God. God heard him. Each heart must individually, by itself, come to the realization that it contributed to the piercing of the king of glory, to the piercing of Jesus on the cross. The apostle Paul would later write, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That godly sorrow that brings repentance is personal. It's a personal matter. It's an issue of your heart individually. Zechariah wrote by themselves, husbands, wives, by themselves. We can't repent for another's sins. I can't repent for my child's sins. My wife can't repent for my sin. Peter said to this collective crowd, thousands that were standing there, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 responded individually. They responded in their hearts. Just like we witnessed this morning with Rochelle, she was baptized 
And she came to that place individually, in her own heart. Her husband couldn't come forward and repent for her. No, she had to come to the cross and repent and be baptized. She had to do that in her own heart. We all do. So in a sense, this prophecy of Zechariah that was fulfilled there in Acts chapter 2, it's continuing to be fulfilled even today, even in our own lives. All who have sinned had a part in Jesus going to the cross. And that's all of us. Because Jesus was pierced by the nails of crucifixion for our sin. And all of us then must come to the place of realization of the brutality of what sin means, of what it has caused, and what Jesus has done to take care of it. Sin put Jesus on the cross. And when we realize that, and when we mourn what it has done and repent before God, how did Zechariah put it? He pours out a spirit of grace. Have you received that grace? Have you seen Christ crucified and mourned for what your sin has done? If not, if not, you're separated from God. And you're missing out on eternal life. Jesus won this for you. Jesus won eternal life for you. And you've got to come to that place of realizing it. Realizing it in your own heart. And then receive grace. Remember, remember Manasseh in the Old Testament. For years he lived for himself. But then he turned and he humbled himself. This morning you can receive that grace of God, the gift of eternal life that Jesus won on the cross by turning as Manasseh did. And there may be some Manessas here in the room this morning, but I'm guessing there's also some Josiahs. Some have been serving the Lord, maybe for a little while, maybe for a decade, maybe for multiple decades. You've been serving the Lord building your reputation of honor and trust and integrity, and now something's pulling on you. Something's causing you to turn. Something, something's pulling you from God in, in, a, in a spirit of pride and arrogance like Josiah. Don't turn. Don't turn. Turn back to the cross. Your true champion, Jesus. Every other champion has failed. Every other champion has struck out. I've seen too many Josiahs who did not become like a Manasseh and humble themselves. Are there any Josiahs in the, in the building this morning? Are there any who haven't turned to, to, to the cross? Are there any who are thinking they can turn away and go on their own? You're being pulled. You're being tempted. You're being tempted to hide, put on a disguise. You think maybe you can hide from God. Your pride's telling you. I've got this. Oh, I've got this. First pitch. No big deal. Second, <laughs> I got this. I can hit a home run. You're going to whiff. Put your focus back on Jesus and the cross. The word of the Lord from Zechariah was, look on me, the one you have pierced. Now, how do you do that? How, you ask? 
You're being tempted. You're being tempted to turn away. How can you, how can this happen? How can you turn your, your eyes upon the cross? Take a minute just to consider your motivations, your decisions. Is life starting to become all about you? That's a red flag. Your weakest moments, your weakest moments are when you're thinking about yourself. When it's all about you, that's when you're weak. When your decisions are to exalt you and lift you, be careful. Look out. When pride creeps in like it did for a guy like Josiah, you might be setting yourself up to go out on the plain of Megiddo thinking you're hidden. You're doing your best to take cover. You disguise yourself. You got this. And the enemy's arrow pierces you through. Look back to the cross. Look back to the cross. How do you keep your eyes on the cross? Take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off yourself and see again the one who was pierced for your sin. Turn to him and mourn for him and grieve for him. Jesus, who died for your sin, that is the way of the cross. And that's the model of Jesus. That's the model of Jesus. And then when he went to the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. No, he thought of us. thought of you, not himself. He thought of me, not himself. Jesus emptied himself. That's, that, that's Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. He said, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If Jesus can humble himself, can't we? I know there's many in this room, most all of us, who would say we've called on Jesus Christ. He's our Lord and Savior. We follow him. But I know about those times where we're pulled, where we're pulled by the world to turn away, to deny him. We need to humble ourselves take our eyes off us 